So, uh, in just real brief, a review, I would say there are three main errors that occur in the quote-unquote evangelical church today. I've already mentioned Reformed theology, Calvinism, or Augustinianism, whatever name you wish to refer it by. Um, their polar opposites would be perhaps the Arminians, and then I'll speak just very briefly about the Universalists. The error with each of these three groups arises from them taking one of the attributes of God and making it supreme over all other attributes. The Calvinists take the sovereignty of God and they force it to rule, to run roughshod over the other attributes of God. If there's any conflict that we perceive between the attributes, to the Calvinist sovereignty trumps all. The net result of that is God is the author of all things. No one can make any decisions but God. The sad uh, end of that is that, well, God is the author of sin. Their polar opposites, the Armenians, they elevate justice. The sad end of that is that every time somebody stumbles or falls, well, they're separated from God. They must be saved all over again. So the end of Arminianism is that man must save himself. Finally, the Universalists, they elevate love. They make love supreme over all else. The end of that is nobody goes to the lake. Nobody goes to the lake of fire. There is no judgment. God forgives all. But we know in the concert of Scripture that none of those positions are correct. So this morning we're going to uh, move on uh, away from election. I'll just briefly say that uh, the Calvinist says nobody knows who's elect only God. But I know, and it's not because I'm a brilliant man. I just know what Scripture says. If we look at election and the elect, with a view that the Calvinists do of who it's speaking of, well, I can tell you who's elect. It's every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. God's desire is that all should come to salvation and none should be lost. This is good and well-pleasing to God, our Savior, who wills all men to be saved. Predestination. Predestination follows salvation. If you have election and salvation, with predestination, you have salvation, then predestination. Predestination always speaks of believers, and they're predestinated to a purpose, which is the will of God. You know, predestinate and predestinated are only found in four verses in the King James Bible. The, the root word in Greek is proorizo. Again, it just means that it's foreordained by God. It's found in six verses. Uh, this morning, we're going to be reading quite a bit of scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, Romans chapter 8, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, four of the verses are found in uh, two of our texts, Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans 8, and then there's an additional verse in Acts 4 and 28, and 1 Corinthians 2 verse 7. I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture. We're going to let scripture speak for itself, and then... I'll give you some opinions, some of my own and some of men who have just expounded on these scriptures. And I was incredibly blessed and chastened in studying for this message. Some of these things we know to be true, but when you really consider what the end result is for those who are in Christ Jesus, it's, it's astounding. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that as we uh, read your scripture, that you would indeed open our hearts, our ears, and let us hear what you say. And I pray that other words of men would support scripture. And if it doesn't, cause it to vanish and disappear. We do indeed just seek to honor you, to bring glory to you and to your son, Jesus Christ. So help us, we pray. Let your spirit guide us in the truth. In Jesus' name. Let's read from Ephesians, the first chapter. I'm going to read a fair amount. We're going to read the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in, in heaven, heaven and which are on earth, even all things in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. The Spirit is pointing out how God has showered us with blessings. We have some blessings in this life, but the view is for eternity. We've been set in the heavenly places. We really already possess this. We have this promise, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, and this is the promise of our eternity. And to what purpose? Well, to the praise of His glory. The purpose of our adoption as sons is not that we would glory in being in heaven, but for the glory of God. Our glory in the joy we receive out of it, that's a side benefit, and it's a wonderful one, but all this is for the glory of God. We're going to jump over to Romans uh, chapter 8, and again, we're going to read quite a bit of scripture because it, it speaks, these are really the scriptures which speak to predestination. Uh, one theologian has said if Romans, or if scripture is a ring, Romans is the gemstone on that ring. And if Romans is the gemstone of the ring of all scripture, chapter 8 is the pinnacle, the most beautiful portion of that gemstone. 
Indeed, all of Romans, the preceding chapters are leading up the glory of the gospel, the depravity of man, salvation through Christ's free gift of God, the necessity of faith, the truth we're separated from sin and joined to Christ. But chapter 7 also points out we're mired in uh, the old nature along with the new. But the eighth chapter, it's glorious. We're, there's no, therefore no, now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It begins and it ends with no separation from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read this portion which points out we're, we're adopted as sons and where we're predestined. So starting with the 14th verse of the 8th chapter of Romans, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait for it eagerly. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You know, I can, I can never pass that verse without pointing out and reflecting on that if we had no verse other than the 30th verse of the 8th chapter of Romans, if we had no other verse which spoke to eternal security, this one seals the deal. There are many others, of course, but if we've ever been justified, we've also been glorified. And the verse preceding it speaks of predestination. That's really our theme verse for the message this morning. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn, the prototokos, amongst many brethren, the preeminent one. Continuing on with verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? 
Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ken, what a glorious chapter. For all the turmoil that human beings go through, this is the promise that through the promise of God we're adopted as sons, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of our Savior Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Spirit, we are conquerors through all the trials and tribulations we face, be it the travails of old age or the illness of even a young one as we spoke of, four years old. Well, let's jump over to the resurrection chapter in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm gonna, again, I'm going to read a very lengthy passage, but it, uh, the only real truth you're going to get in the message this morning is this reading of Scripture. And I don't want to pass up anything which speaks to uh, our, our topic. I'm going to read verse 19, and then we're going to jump down to 29. Uh, the, pa the passage in between verses 20 through 28 are sort of an interlude. And verse 29 looks right back at verse 19 and answers a question which is posed there. Or it, it continues on with a, a question and then answers it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only... We are of all men most to be pitied. Jumping to verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, I'm, I'm reading from the New American Standard, and I changed that last word from them. In the Greek, it's much more appropriate to say the dead again. But let me reread this, because in the context of what Paul is talking about here, he's speaking about the dangers that those who profess Christ were facing. Let me reread uh, verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for Christ? If Christ is not raised at all, why then are they baptized for Christ? You know, a, a Jew of those days could make a profession that they believed Jesus was Messiah, and they might be criticized, but when they were baptized, they were cast out of the temple. They their families often would hold uh, a funeral for them. They considered them as dead. And continuing on, Paul asks this question, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I only I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, see, he's speaking back again about why do all this if there is no resurrection? If I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 
Paul inserts here this uh, exhortation to be sober-minded, to think seriously about the matters of God and to stop sinning and, and to gather in knowledge of God that we might be obedient. So obviously this has to do with resurrection or at least a better resurrection. Going on, addressing the, the questions uh, the people would ask in verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another of beasts, and another of flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthy bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You know, these bodies can't exist in the presence of the glory of God. We'd burn up, even as God warned Moses. We're going to be given a body appropriate for living in the presence of the glory of God. And sadly, those who are separated forever from God will be given a body that's appropriate for their place in eternity also. Continuing on with verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on the immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then a final uh, admonition, an exhortation again from Paul. Therefore, because of all these things of resurrection, therefore, my beloved brother, brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And you know, Paul includes himself in here, us, we, uh, speaking to the brethren, but you know, and again, an imperishable body is also going to be given to the lost, one that 
exist forever in the lake of fire, a place we don't like to think about. But that's the eternity from which we've been saved. Well, now we're going to start to speak about, as the scripture we read pointed out, we have a wonderful, a great eternity waiting for us. And this is the promise of God, and its purpose is to bring glory to God. So I might say, if our view is that our goal is to go to heaven, I believe we've missed the boat. That is a wonderful side benefit. And I define heaven as that's the presence of God, wherever it might be, in the heavenly realms or here on the earth, particularly in the eternal state, the newly uh, perfected and renovated earth. But yet Paul did speak about good works. We preach uh, vehemently that you can't get to heaven by good works, and rightly so. Yet we're always called to demonstrate good works. We're, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 about one who all his works, works will burn up, yet he himself will be saved. Uh, we joke perhaps uh, flippantly, but he'll be in heaven with the smell of smoke on him. Well, well I don't think so. But it does point out there's consequences for not working. Uh, we should show honor to God. We've been bought with the blood of Christ. We ought to honor him by being obedient. You know, throughout Scripture, the chief end of God is his own glory. The time is going to keep me from reading. I have uh, some scriptures just speaking about the glory of God and how valuable it was to him. But if we just think of the Israelites when they would sin and walk away from God and they'd be persecuted uh, or they'd be taken captive, when the Lord would come to them to rescue them, he told them, it's, I'm not doing this for you, I'm doing it for the glory of my name. And I think we lose sight of that, that the most important thing in the universe is the glory of God. We're to the praise of his glory. And it's a wonderful end result for us that we should always be mindful that all things we do are for the praise of his glory. Jonathan Edwards wrote an entire book about the glory of God, but I, I can just wrap it up in one sentence out of that. All that is ever spoken of in scripture as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. Now this may seem uh, a little odd. I'm going I'm to quote some Calvinists actually in this message. Uh, these are dear brothers in Christ who love the Lord. He's richly blessed millions of people through their ministry. And I, I disagree with their, their view on election and reformed theology. But I'm going to quote from John Piper a passage that's very piercing words. And he accurately captures um, a pitfall into which we can very easily fall. Again, it's, it's a, a book he wrote uh, about the glory of God, but he, he makes this stunning uh, statement and asks some questions. Why is it important to be stunned by the God-centeredness of God? Because many people are willing to be God-centered as long as they feel that God is man-centered. It's a subtle danger. We may think we are centering our lives on God when we are really making him a means to self-esteem. Over against this danger, I urge you to ponder the implications, brothers, that God loves his glory more than he loves us and that this is the foundation of his love for us. And that should bring us to the serious question. Will I let my desires for earthly satisfaction override uh, the obligation I have to live a life for Christ? He's the one who bought me with his blood. You know, Paul speaks to this in Galatians 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, 
but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We should live for Christ, in Christ, not for ourselves and in ourselves. We hear these words along these lines and we know they're true, but often the, the root is very shallow. It just comes down to our, what are we gonna make important? Are we gonna choose submission or the satiation of our, our earthly um, flesh? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Even in our perception of who God is and how we relate to him. A Spurgeon said about it, a lack of depth in the inner life accounts for most of the doctrinal error in the church. Sound conviction of sin, deep humiliation on account of it, and a sense of utter weakness and unworthiness naturally conduct the mind to the belief of the doctrines of grace. While shallowness in these matters leaves a man content with a superficial creed. We don't want to lead superficial lives. Again, what did our, what's our theme verse say? That our end result is, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. Conformity to Christ is the sacred object of predestination. That's what it's about. Salvation, predestination. With God's promise that we're going to be conformed to Christ. Continuing on with some words that Spurgeon wrote. He, he wrote it so beautifully, I, uh, it would be a travesty for me to put it in my own words. Man was originally made in the image of God, but by sin he has defaced that image. And now we who are born into this world are fashioned not in the heavenly image of God, but in the earthy image of the fallen Adam. The Lord in boundless grace has resolved that a company of whom no man can number, called here many brethren, shall be restored to his image in, in the particular form in which his eternal son displays it. To this end, Jesus Christ came into the world and bore our image that we, through his grace, might bear his image. He became a partaker of our infirmities and sicknesses that we might become partakers of the divine nature in all its excellence and purity. He is evermore transforming the chosen, removing that defilement of sin and molding them after the perfect model of his son, Jesus Christ, the second Adam who is the firstborn, the prototokos, amongst many brethren. The divine nature, Peter speaks to it in 2 Peter 1 verse 4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You know, it's not possible for us to be divine, but we are told we're going to partake of the divine nature of Christ. You know, even as we are earthy, we are going to be heavenly, conformed to Christ. He's our forerunner. He's gone into heaven ahead of us and has promised to draw us to him. In, in addition to taking on the nature of Christ, we uh, take on the relationship of Christ uh, to the Father. And we're told as many as received him, to them gave you power to become children of God. We're going to be the sons of God. How much will we be conformed to the image and how good a son are we going to be? Well, a lot of that's reflected in this life and how obedient we are. You know, 
The only humans who don't move are those who are physically dead. We're either moving towards God or we're moving away from him. It all comes down to whether we're obedient or disobedient. If we say we believe scripture, it's going to be outwardly manifested if we truly believe it. Anytime we sin, anytime we're disobedient, that's proof, outward manifestation that we don't believe the scripture or we don't fear the consequences of sin or we're not broken hearted that we're betraying our Savior Jesus Christ. Every sin is a betrayal of the one we say we love. Sobering thoughts. In addition to Christ's nature, we, we inherit his experiences, experience with God, with man, with Satan, with evil. You know, God was pleased to bruise his son and we're told that he will chastise us. He scourges every son whom he receiveth. And what about the relationship with man? We spoke of it already. He came into his own and his own received him not. What was the end result of Christ's experience with man? He was crucified. Satan, Satan sought to tempt our Savior, failed miserably. Satan doesn't fail often with us, does he? He seeks to sift us like wheat. But we have strength and power through the Spirit of God. We've been redeemed and freed from sin. When it comes to evil, Christ fought evil every place he turned, whether it was evil uh, spirits or evil men, evil philosophies, uh, evil doctrines. He resisted evil, and so also should we. Finally, the world. How did, what was Christ's experience with the world? Well, as he told Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And likewise, though we dwell here now, we're sojourners here. Our home is in heaven. We've read about that in Ephesians. We've been seated in the heavenly places. We should not look at this world with affection and with a desire to remain. We share in the inheritance. Psalm 8 speaks about, you know, God has made man a little lower than the angels. And what is it that we should inherit the earth? But through Christ we inherit all things. We're conformed to the glory of Christ. You know, if we think of these bodies, um, these bodies are evidence of the curse, slowly breaking down. Now, I'm told that I'm glorified in Romans 8, verse 30. But look, brothers and sisters, does this look like a glorified body? It's not very glorious, is it? But yet, there's a body in heaven not made with human hands awaiting for me when Christ comes to receive those who are his own. Our mind ought to be in the future. We can look at this body and be reminded of the curse. You know, uh, when we behold his glory, we realize that we're going to be with him where he is and like he is. All of this is God's work. It's not our own. We can't take any credit for it. You know, as Paul uh, gave the admonition in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? None of this is, is, is of our own making. Oh, we have uh, acquiesced. We have said, God, that's a good deal. I will take it. I will take salvation. I will take mercy. I will receive your grace. But it's all a gift. Everything, we, we are God's creation. We have nothing that is ours. We can do no good thing in the flesh, only through the power of God working in us. Well, the ultimate end of all this is Christ. That's where Romans 8, verse 29 is focused. It's, it's on Christ. Verse 30 speaks to our glorification, and it's a wonderful verse for us, but Romans 8, verse 29, though it speaks of us being predestined to be conformed to his image, 
It's that he, that he, the Christ, might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. The focus is squarely on Christ. That's where our focus ought to be. Spurgeon says, God predestinates us to be like Jesus, that his dear son might be the first of a new order of beings, elevated above all other creatures and nearer to God than any other existences. He was Lord of angels. Seraphim and cherubim obeyed his behest, but the son desired to be the head of a race of beings more nearly allied to him than any existing spirits. There was no kinship between the Lord Jesus and angels. Uh, for to which of the angels had the father said at any time, thou art my son. No, they're by, by nature, they're servants. He's the son of God. There's quite a disparity between them in that, uh, in that standing. No, the eternal son desired association with beings who should be sons as he was towards whom he could stand in a close relationship as being like to them in nature and sonship. And the father therefore ordained that a seed whom he had chosen should be conformed to the image of the son, that his son might head up and be chief among an order of beings more nearly akin to God than any other. You know, the, the angels... They only know good. Unless they're a fallen angel, they only know they've been protected by grace. They don't understand sin. We're a demonstration of love, mercy, and grace for their sinless beings. And we're told we're going to rule over them. But here are we who know both good and evil. We understand the one and the other two. And now there is begotten in us a nature which loves holiness and cannot sin because it is born of God. We are left free agents, yes. We are freer than we ever were. And yet in this life and in the life to come, our path is like that of the just, which shineth more and more unto the perfect day. We're being conformed to the image of Christ here. The speed at which we're conformed to the image of Christ is dependent upon our obedience. The Spirit is seeking to work us and to make us objects, vessels of honor, not vessels of dishonor. Jesus now heads a race, Spurgeon goes on to say, assailed but victorious, sorely tempted but enabled to overcome. Joyfully and cheerfully, forever shall it be our delight to do the Father's will. Forever with Christ at our head, he shall be the nearest to the eternal throne. We will be the most attached of servants because also sons and the most firmly adhesive to good because we once knew the bitterness of evil. Even as Christ had to drink from the cup of the suffering of sin, so we have sipped of it. We have known horror caused by guilt. And therefore, for the future shall be throughout eternity a nobler race, freer to serve, and serving God after a nobler fashion than any other creatures in the universe. Why? Because we knew the horror and the guilt of sin. There are many brothers and sisters in the flesh dwelling amongst us who don't know the horror of sin. They're completely comfortable with it. And because of that, they don't seek a savior. Well, our, our blessed Lord delights in fellowship and in such is the greatness of his heart that he would not be alone in his glory, but would have associates in his happiness. Spurgeon said it this way. Now I speak with bated breath. God can do all things, but I can see not any way by which he could give to his only begotten son beings that should be akin to himself except through the processes which we discover in the economy of grace. Here are beings that know evil and know also good. 
beings placed under infinite obligation by bonds of love and gratitude to choose forever the good beings with nature so renewed that they must always be holy beings. And these beings can commune with the incarnate God upon spurring, as angels cannot, upon the penalty of guilt, as angels cannot, upon heart throes, conflicts, reproaches, and brokenness of spirit, as angels cannot. And to them the Lord Jesus can reveal the glory of holiness, the bliss of conquering sin, and the sweetness of benevolence as only they can comprehend comprehend them. Renewed men are made fit companions for the Son of God. He shall feast all the more joyously because they shall eat bread with him in his kingdom. He shall be joyful when he declares the Lord's name unto his brethren. He shall joy in their joy and be glad in their gladness. We're not going to be servants. We're going to be members of the royal household partakers of the divine nature, the thought of that is, how can we grasp that? How can we go on sinning if we believe that to be true? Perhaps our fullest thought upon the text is this. God was so well pleased with his son and saw such beauties in him that he determined to multiply his image. My beloved, said he, thou shalt be the model by which I will fashion my noblest creature. I will for thy sake make men able to converse with thee and bound to thee by bonds of love. Who shall be next and akin to myself and in all things like unto thee? Behold, from heaven's mint, golden pieces of inestimable value are, are sent forth, and each one bears the image and the superscription of the Son of God. The face of Jesus is more lovely to God than all the world's. His eyes are brighter than the stars. His voice is sweeter than bliss. Therefore, doth the Father will to have his Son's beauty reflected in 10,000 mirrors and saints made like to him. And his praise is chanted by myriads of voices of those who love him because his blood has saved them. The Father knew how happy his Son would be to associate with those chosen with himself for of old his delights were with the sons of men. Now, even as the shepherd loves his sheep and the king loves his subjects, so Jesus loves his people. The scripture tells us this deep mystery. As it is not good for a man to be alone, and as for this cost doth a man leave his, fa his father and mother and is joined unto his wife, and they twain are one flesh. Even so it is with church and Christ. Spurgeon finished with this, he was made like unto her for her salvation, and now she is made like unto him for his honor. In what way could the father put greater honor on his son than by forming a race like to himself? Who for the many brethren amongst whom he is the well-beloved firstborn? The glories that are ours indescribable. Our lives should be changed. We should live for the glory of God. That's what's most important to him. And he has bestowed the honor upon us that we might be partakers of the divine nature, that we might share in the glory of God. Moving from fallen creatures to those who will rule over angels. Who amongst us would change positions with Michael, 
with Gabriel. We've been accorded the image of Christ and it's been promised by the God of all glory. Praise unto his name. What should we do? We should steal ourselves on Christ. We should focus on Christ and commune. We should seek to yield to the Spirit of God. He might have free reign to conform us to the image of Christ in this life. Get a head start on the next. Grasp unto Christ. Hear the words of God. Turn unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. We've been accorded all this, the glory of Christ. He who is not ashamed to call us brethren. What glory is given to us. Those who are outside of Christ, their end is told in Revelation chapter 20. A fearful thought, the lake of fire. We should redouble our efforts to bring the lost into a saving knowledge of Christ that they also might bear the image of the Lamb of God. He's paid for their souls with his blood. He deserves the glory. So we ought to reach out to the lost for what we have has been given to us and what we have is offered to them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises that you give us, we the undeserving, and yet you have made us the recipients of your manifold blessings and glories and promise, and you are not a man that you should lie, neither you the son of man that you should change your mind. What you have foreordained, what you have predestinated us to become, we shall be. Take our lives, Lord. Break our hearts. Let the Spirit pour out conviction. Mold us and shape us in this life and help us to reach out for the lost. We praise you and give you honor and glory into that of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in his name we pray, amen. If there is anybody here who does not know where they're going when, they're, when they die, it's not safe for you to die. Speak to one of us after the meeting. We're not going to twist anybody's arm or beat you into submission. We'll just show you from the Scripture how simple it is to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Oh, it's not necessarily easy. You must swallow pride. For some of us, that's a bellyful. But we will share with you and tell you why we have this hope, why we possess this promise of God that you also might know. Even as the Apostle John said, I, these words I write unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Also, if anybody desires prayer for anything, uh, we remember praying for our, our, our dear young one. If you have needs of prayer, speak to one of us. We'd be, we'd be pleased to go into the throne room of grace for you. Thank you.